Episode 44, The Inquisition. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast whose chief weapon is surprise. Surprise and fear. Our two chief weapons are fear, surprise, and ruthless efficiency. Our three weapons are fear, surprise, ruthless efficiency, and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Our four, no, amongst our weaponry are such elements as fear, I'll, I'll come back and do it again. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. It really will be hard for me to do an episode on the Inquisition without constantly thinking about the Monty Python sketch about this Inquisition, which is one of the funniest bits that Monty Python ever did. Nevertheless, I'm going to try to stick to the actual history of the Inquisition, as hard as that may be for me. It wasn't actually in my long-term plan for the podcast to do an episode on the Inquisition, but I thought of it while I was working on the episode about Galileo, and I thought, hey, that's a pretty good topic, so I made a snap decision to add this episode and squeeze it in right here. It makes sense to put it here because Wycliffe, Huss, Galileo, all of whom I've mentioned recently, they were all tried by some type of church inquisition, and Huss even lost his life to it. I didn't mention this last episode when I was talking about Wycliffe, though I should have. After Wycliffe had already died, right, an inquisition came later, and the later inquisition convicted him, even though he's already dead, convicted him of heresy, excommunicated him again, and then had his bones exhumed, dug up, and then they had his bones burned and scattered. This may be taking it a bit into the category of overkill, but this overkill was the kind of thing that the church did in these situations because they didn't want people venerating his remains, which was a thing back then. Pilgrims would come and sort of worship the remains of someone like Wycliffe, hoping for a miracle. And the church definitely didn't want people worshiping Wycliffe, so they burned his remains and scattered them. Okay, Inquisition. The Inquisition is one of those weird historical things that everyone has heard of, right? And everyone has a really, really bad impression of it, and, and rightly so. But nobody knows exactly what it was, when it was, or, or why it happened. And honestly, from my opinion, it's one of the blackest marks on the church in the church's history. It's up there with the Crusades. The Inquisition itself implies torture, cruelty, injustice, religious fanaticism of the worst sort, images of Dolores Umbridge, all of it really dark and unpleasant. So what really happened? What was the Inquisition and why did it happen? The Inquisition was first started in the 1100s as the church tried to investigate a group called the Cathars, who said they were Christians, and they said they were part of the church, but they also believed that they were two equal gods, one good and one evil. These two gods were in a battle, according to the Cathars. The Cathars, who lived in France, believed that the Old Testament showed the evil god, and the New Testament showed the good god. So the Old Testament was a story about the evil god and what he did. The New Testament was a story about the good god and what he was doing. Well, the rest of the church wanted to make sure that this wasn't being taught in any churches because the church didn't agree with it. Because it was very contrary to the official position of the church that there was only one God and he's sovereign over everything. The church did believe in the devil, but he was in no way equal to God. 
So the church sent investigators to inquire about what was going on. They were inquiring, so they were called inquisitors, and the process became known as the Inquisition. The word itself comes from the Latin word inquisitio, which was a Roman term for basically any judicial process. This term came to be used by the church, and they used a sort of judicial process themselves. There would be someone who was giving evidence against the person who was accused. There would be a person or a panel of people judging whether the accused person was teaching or at least believing heresy. So the word inquisition refers to a process, not an organization or a group of people. Oddly enough, there were several different main inquisitions, and I'll get to the big ones in a moment. The church in the Middle Ages was constantly fighting a battle against people who claimed that they were Christians, and some of them were actually in positions within the church, like bishops or priests, but they were teaching things that were different from, or even antagonistic to, the official teachings of the church. The church called this wrong teaching heresy, as opposed to orthodoxy. Basically, heresy means error, and orthodoxy means right belief. Heresy was any teaching that the church leaders deemed to be dangerous and also contrary to what the church was teaching as a whole. So, for example, the idea that there's two equal gods, one good God and one evil God, they're equal. That's what the Cathars believed. That was considered by the church to be heretical. To the church, it was a dangerous teaching that would lead unschooled believers into a serious error. Like your average peasant, they wouldn't know that this was wrong because they didn't have enough um, knowledge of the Bible on their own to not believe what was being taught to them. So what's the danger? Well, in the church's eyes, the danger was that if there's two equal gods, one evil and one good, this could easily lead people to follow the evil God and think, well, that guy's winning. I'm going to follow him, right? Much like modern America is doing, it, rather than following what the church often called the one true God. So having people openly believing and teaching that there were two equal gods was something that the church needed to investigate and to counter. Also, the church was really committed to the idea that there was only one right way to believe, and that was whatever the church said was right. So any deviation from full agreement with the church position was seen as dangerous. There's only one right way to do it. That's our way. At the core of this was the idea that people needed to pursue truth, not just as individuals, but the whole culture as well, which is actually kind of a worthy goal. But the investigations pretty rapidly got out of hand as petty church leaders were given authority to investigate all sorts of made-up heresies, right? And they were given authority at first to exile and then later imprison and eventually torture and execute people that were considered to be heretics. And literally anyone could accuse someone else of being a heretic. So people with this kind of power, well, they tend to abuse it. Power corrupts, as they say. It was true then, as it's true now. The first inquisitions within the church started in the Middle Ages. But in the 1100s, things really got to be more serious with the Cathars. And in 1229, a permanent inquisition council was set up in Rome, and they had a branch office in southern France. Then a bit later, in 1252, the Pope, this Pope was ironically known as Pope Innocent IV, he issued a papal decree that authorized the use of torture in certain circumstances to get people to confess to their heresy. All right, now this seems like a totally crazy thing, right? The church just casually authorizing torture? 
It's kind of like the pastor of the church today saying, yeah, you can spank the kids in Sunday school when they misbehave or if they get the Bible memory verse wrong. That seems out of place in a church setting, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, yes and no. Remember that the church in the Middle Ages was not just the church. It was also a major political organization. It was looking out for the political unity and welfare of the entirety of Europe. The church leaders at least partly saw themselves as guardians of the truth, but they also saw themselves as being responsible for protecting the unity of the Christian nations of Europe from a world of enemies. And they did have legitimate enemies. There were the Muslims, the pagans, various revolutionary groups that cropped up from time to time, and even the heretics. So the church saw heretics not just as harmless non-believers, crazy people who just could be sort of ignored. They saw them as dangerous revolutionaries and a threat to the unity of Europe. So why use torture? Seems like a good question, right? Well, what would often happen in early inquisitions was that the person who's being brought before the inquisition would just say, no, I don't believe that. I believe exactly what the church says. And unless that person had written a book, which was, of course, back then really rare, the inquisition court sort of had to let them go. They couldn't prove that that person was believing something heretical. And in cases where there was groups of people like the Cathars who all believed something heretical, the people who are accused would often cover for one another. Oh, no, no, he doesn't believe that. I don't believe that. No one in our group really believes that. So the church sometimes had trouble finding out who really believed what. And so they authorized torture in some cases. Now, I'm not justifying it. It seems crazy to me too. But in the medieval world, it does sort of make sense, right? Torture was a much more common way of treating your enemies back then. You remember Vlad the Impaler, right? Torture. Roman crucifixion, torture. That was how you treated your enemies back in the day. You tortured and you killed them, and that would scare some of the population into line. It's not until the Reformation and the Enlightenment, really, that people begin to say, hey, you know, maybe we should not be doing this. It's wrong, even if that person is our enemy. So the whole not torturing your enemies thing, it's kind of a post-Enlightenment idea. In medieval Europe, torturing your enemies was sort of par for the course. But of course, once the church authorized torture at all, it totally started to get out of hand. In the 1200s, Pope Gregory IX put much of the Inquisition process into the hands of two Catholic orders, the Jesuits and the Franciscans. And this gave those orders an enormous amount of power, which they ended up abusing. Each Inquisition court had a grand inquisitor who was sort of the chief judge. This was a very powerful position within any given territory. Imagine that you're a peasant and you have a petty social disagreement with someone who's the friend of the chief inquisitor. That friend of the inquisitor could have you dragged, literally dragged, in front of the inquisition and you could be accused of heresy, even if you were totally innocent. And because you had been accused, you could be tortured and your assets could be seized. They could take your house, they could take your gold, they could take your property. Back then there was no innocent until proven guilty kind of a thing, just being accused of heresy was enough to ruin your life, or at least ruin you socially. So the fear of this kind of thing was actually a very, very powerful tool for keeping people in line. There were several different iterations of this inquisition. The first main inquisition was called the Roman Inquisition because it was based in Rome, though there were tribunal courts in other places as well, like southern France, like I said before. 
It was this Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition, that Galileo was called in front of. In 1578, that's before Galileo, a book of instructions about how to do an Inquisition was put out by the church. It was called Directorium Inquisitorium, and it explained how to do an Inquisition process. It also explained the penalties. This book, put out by the church now, it allowed for punishments including torture, exile, seizing of assets, because it helped the public good by making others afraid of the evils that they might otherwise commit. That's a quote from the book. And although some of the punishments were lighter, like maybe having to make a public declaration or having to wear a red X on your garments for a while, some of the punishments were, of course, more severe. Banishment, being imprisoned, being executed, being tortured, all of those things were allowed by this book, the Directorium Inquisitorium. And here's where things really, really went wrong. The Inquisition allowed the Inquisitor to seize the property of the accused even before they were convicted. So this gave the Inquisitors lots of incentive to have people dragged in front of them because it was a major source of income to them and became a major source of corruption and injustice. So separate from the Roman Inquisition, there was also a Portuguese Inquisition, though that one was licensed by Rome. It was just superintended not by Rome, but by the Portuguese king. And the Portuguese king was allowed to name his Grand Inquisitor. The Portuguese kings always chose someone from the royal family. At first, in the Portuguese Inquisition, the focus was on investigating Jews who were living in Portugal, and that especially ramped up in 14. 92 after Spain expelled all of their Jews and many of them moved to Portugal. But of course, the Portuguese Inquisition expanded and was prominent not only in Portugal, but in Brazil and other Portuguese colonies as well. By one estimate, the Portuguese Inquisition alone condemned almost 1,200 people, that's 1,200 people, to be burned. On top of that, there were all the people who were tortured, exiled, and whose assets were confiscated. But the really over-the-top example of the Inquisition was the Spanish Inquisition. This was also licensed by Rome, but it was controlled by the King of Spain. It was started in 1478, and it operated in Spain and eventually in almost all of Spain's colonies. The Spanish, at first, were trying to root out Jews and Muslims who lived in Spain, and they said publicly that they had converted to Christianity, but the Spanish thought they were still secretly practicing their old faiths. In 1492, the same year that Columbus set out to find China, but before he actually left, Spain expelled all the remaining Jews from Spain. Those who remained in Spain after this expulsion, they had to either convert or they would be rounded up and killed. So many of them did, at least on the surface, convert. Those Jews and Muslims who stayed were called conversos, and many of them were brought before the Inquisition to test whether or not they really had converted. And, of course, since the Inquisitor could seize their property, many were brought before the Inquisition just for the financial gain of the Inquisitors. Many others were tortured, killed, or exiled. The Spanish Inquisition, though on paper it was a religious court, was really sort of the secret police of Spain, and it was used by the Spanish crown to keep order in the colonies and at home, basically using the threat of Inquisition terror uh, as a way to keep their own population in line. The Spanish Inquisition lasted, incredibly, until the mid-1800s, with the last execution actually taking place in 1826. A little before that, the Portuguese Inquisition had been abolished. That was 1821, right after the Portuguese Revolution of 1820. 
The Roman Inquisition, however, was never actually fully abolished. Its name was changed a couple of times, and it now still exists as part of the departments of the Vatican, and it's called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. It's a department of the government of the Catholic Church, and its offices are just outside of Vatican City. So technically, the Inquisition is still ongoing. So what is the legacy of the Inquisition? Well, first, it was one of the drivers of the Reformation, and we'll get to that topic itself in a couple of episodes. People all across Europe began to see how unjust and arbitrary the Inquisition was becoming, and they began to resist the church despite the danger. The Inquisition itself, just by existing, created resistance. It sowed a seed of discord among thinkers, rulers, and even amongst the peasants. So when the Reformation started to happen and people started to leave the Catholic Church, many common people actually thought, well, good, now we don't have to deal with the Inquisition anymore. So it probably made people more amenable to actually leaving the Roman Church. Second, the Inquisition left an indelible image in the mind of all of Western culture. Western culture today has a view of the medieval church as being ruthless, corrupt, and at times, well, even evil. And they're not completely wrong with that, right? It's part of the imagery. The church today hasn't completely escaped this image either. A large number of people in the world today still see the church not as a force for good, but as a force for repression and control. And in some ways, they're not wrong about that. The church today, though, has mostly moved past this. I mean, the church nowadays isn't about repression and ruthless destruction of its enemies and torture. It's got a much more soft message nowadays. But within the memory of Western culture, there's still this image of the church being this ruthless persecutor of its enemies, of the church being out there to get you. And I think this affects the Western view of God for many people as well. God is viewed through that same lens. He's out there to get you for the bad things. Well, you, well, we, all of us have done. We've all done them and he's out to get us. And the church has tried to change the way it presents God, but that imagery still lingers in many people's minds. It hasn't helped that the church, especially the medieval church, played up the idea that hell is this place where sinners are tortured, actively tortured, for all of eternity. Now, this was a much bigger deal in the Middle Ages, but it's still part of how our modern culture sees the church. The church does still spend a lot of time talking about sin and hell. And, well, I'm going to talk about hell, too, in a couple of episodes. So the Inquisition was originally a small-scale court proceeding at first to see if someone was indeed teaching something dangerous or false. But it grew and it grew and it became a means of persecuting, oppressing, and controlling people all across Europe. All in the name of good, though. This comes back to the same problem we've mentioned before in this podcast. That as institutions of government grow stronger and bigger, they tend to value the preservation of that institution over the rights of the people that make up the institution. And the people at the top of the institution tend to wield its power to preserve their position and their privilege. Whether that's a king trying to preserve his power by tyranny, or an institutional church body trying to preserve its power via inquisition, or a democratically founded nation trying to control its people through fear, propaganda, and unnecessary vaccinations, it's the same thing. The institution tries to preserve and increase itself, especially increase the power of the people at the top, at the expense of the actual people that make up the institution. Institutions are dangerous because of that. They're necessary, but they're dangerous. 
the Inquisition became an institution, and it became corrupted and abusive, as institutions tend to do, as men sought its power to use against other people. The church as a whole has often had the same problem. It becomes an institution, whether it's a small local church or a giant international church. It becomes a big institution, and the people at the top will occasionally become ruthless in preserving the power and the income and the money and the prestige of that institution. Those at the top start to lose sight of the point of the institution, and they end up using it for their own selfish interests. The writers of the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, as well as other constitutions in the Western world, they knew this tendency of leaders, and they sought, vainly, to create governmental structures that would protect the rights of the people against the ever-growing institution of the government itself. Well, we're going to get to that story eventually, too, but we're not there yet. One last thing about the Inquisition. It has a very contemporary parallel. In many parts of Western society today, we see the consequences of what has become known as cancel culture. If any person in a public forum today dares to openly oppose the prevailing status quo of that forum, then the mediators of that forum, whoever they are, will very quickly remove the person who disagrees with them, or at least shame them into non-relevance. That forum might be a social media app, it might be television, it can be any public media forum, or it might be a teaching position in a university. The monitors of that forum will remove dissenting voices, as long as they're dissenting from what's acceptable according to the status quo of that forum. Now, as in the Inquisition, the squelching of public debate, the removal of contrary voices in places that are public forums, such as like Twitter or Facebook, television, or in places such as universities and government offices, where open debate used to be encouraged, now these contrary voices are systematically removed, and only the approved voices are allowed to speak. This is an amazing parallel to the Inquisition. Imagine being a professor today in an Ivy League school, for example, and having an opinion like something that was common not that long ago, like being pro-life or believing openly in God. Very quickly, some snowflake student would accuse you of having violated their safe space, and soon you would be removed from your job simply because you had a dissenting voice. You would be subject to immense public scorn and probably lose your job and your income. It's very Inquisition, just without the scary medieval torture devices. Just for having a public opinion that was contrary to the status quo and voicing it openly. There's an innate irony here in this, too. Progressivism, which is an ideology that's behind cancel culture, is an inherently anti-church ideology. In fact, as I said before, the only sense of progress that progressivism can actually point to is progress away from the church or progress away from God. And yet, progressivism has, astoundingly, created a culture just like the Inquisition, a culture where thoughtful people are thinking a little bit outside the box, are afraid to speak their mind for fear of repression and significant economic repercussions. It's just like the Inquisition. Nobody expected that. Next episode, we'll talk about the reaction in Europe to the corruption of the church as people all across Europe began to resist cancel culture. I mean, resist the Inquisition. We can even point to the day when the tide turned. That was Halloween of 1517, when an obscure German monk wrote down 95 things that he thought were wrong with the church, and he nailed them to the door of his seminary in Wittenberg. 
Trouble at the mill. Oh, no. What, what sort of trouble? One of crossbeam's gone out of skew on treadle. Pardon? One of crossbeam's gone out of skew on treadle. I don't understand what you're saying. One of the crossbeams has gone out of skew on the treadle. <laughs> what on earth does that mean? I don't know. Mr. Wentworth just told me to come in here and say that there was trouble at the mill, that's all. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Our chief weapon is surprise. Surprise and fear. Fear and surprise are two weapons. Our fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency. Our three weapons are fear and surprise and ruthless efficiency and an almost fanatical devotion to the Pope. Our four, no. <laughs> Amongst our weapons. Amongst our weaponry are such elements as fear. I'll come in again. 